0: The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well,
1: good morning, everybody. Um, It's wonderful to be with you this morning, and it's my pleasure to bring the Word of God to us this morning. So I hope you can all abide my funny accent, and you can forgive all of the spelling errors that I'm going to have on my PowerPoint slides today. Um, But with that all said and that out of the way, I'd like to begin this morning uh, by asking a few questions things that we might have been wondering. How do we make sense of all the chaos and confusion in the world around us, especially during this time of pandemic? How are we to reconcile the facts that we serve both an all-powerful and a sovereign God, and yet we find our world, our own hearts, and even creation in what seems like constant rebellion against him? What do we make about troubled times? Is God there? Does he care about us and what's going on? So these are some of the big questions that arise in Psalm 2, and it's my delight this morning to be able to walk us through this glorious psalm so that we can see together what it has to teach us. So today's message will, in typical fashion, have three points. Um, First, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, and we'll see about the already-not-yet nature of this psalm, and what it tells us about rebellion against God's rule and reign, and how we ought to understand all of that in context. Second, we're going to consider verses four through six, which will help us understand the absolute sovereignty of God, his wrath against sin and rebellion, and the foolishness of us participating in that. And finally, in verses seven through 13, we'll consider his promise of redemption and the refuge that's brought about by the true king. So let's jump right in. We'll begin with those first three verses of the psalm. So Psalm chapter two, verses one through three. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up against, and the rulers band together against Yahweh and against his his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Psalm 2 begins with a common question for the Christian, why? In fact, the question in view here may very well be one that we've asked ourselves. Why does it seem that so many in the world today are in opposition to God? Because if we stop for even the briefest moment to think about the world around us, it becomes manifestly obvious that this is not a problem that was confined to antiquity. The question is as applicable in our day and age as it was in the time of ancient Israel. Why do people rebel against God? Why do they try to throw off his rule and his reign? We've only got to look at some of the nations around us to see governments that are actively opposed to the work of God. We can consider China and North Korea or some of the Islamist governments that we see and it's quite clear that they are actively opposed to what God is trying to do or to what God will do. But even more than that, we can see smaller examples of this. Maybe it comes in the form of a political party that's explicitly anti-Christian in its opinions. Maybe it comes in the form of a neighbor who belittles our faith and looks down on us or the boss who demands that we work on Sundays even though he knows that we should be going to church. There's big examples and there's small examples but as Christians, it's quite clear to us that the world and its powers are often arrayed against God and his people. And it's with a scene demonstrating this that Psalm 2 opens. It takes us to a scene where there's a worldwide rebellion that's occurring against Yahweh and against his king. So now the interactive portion of this morning. If I ask you to name the greatest empires in the history of the world, who do you think you would name? Take five seconds or so to think about it. Alright, well, I'll bet a number of you probably thought about the British Empire, right? British Empire is pretty big. Can we have that first slide up? And we'll see how big the extent was. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite large. But maybe you thought about some other ones as well. Maybe you thought about the Mongols or the Ottomans or the Romans. Let's go ahead and zoom in a little bit more. We'll just zoom into that little Mediterranean piece and we can see how big the Roman Empire was. Maybe you thought about the Babylonians or the Assyrians or even the Khmer in Cambodia, I don't know. But the one that I can guarantee that you didn't think about was the Israelite empire. And that makes sense because there never really was one. The nation of Israel achieved some amount of prominence in the age of David and Solomon, but in the big scheme of things in the ancient world, it was a small backwater kingdom. So if we flip over, to the next slide, we can see just kind of how small and how backwater they were. So these are the largest empires in human history. Um, the British Empire is first. The Roman Empire, which I thought was a lot bigger than it actually was, uh, falls way down at 24th. And I couldn't even figure out exactly where the Israelite empire would fit on the Syriatum because the, all the tables and charts of the largest empires in the world didn't go down that far. This was a tiny, tiny, tiny little place. And you know, we actually really shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised that they didn't achieve major acclaim and, and dominion um, during, their time, the, during the time that they existed. Because after all, Yahweh tells his people in Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8 that Yahweh didn't set his affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, because you were the fewest of all people. But it was because Yahweh loved you. And he kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Friends, in the eyes of the world, the nation of Israel was never a major player on the world stage. But that's not the picture that we see in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 presents us with a scenario where the kings and nations of the earth are all vassal states of Israel. They all look to them to see what they, do, what they ought to do and how they ought to be ruled. They're supposed to be in subservience to Yahweh and to his anointed king, but they're instead plotting rebellion, hoping to throw off their shackles and gain their own independence. And how are we to make sense of this? Because even at the height of Israel's power, there's no situation where we could reasonably say that this was the case. In fact, throughout most of its existence, Israel would have been in the exact opposite position. They would have been trying to cast off the chains of some other regional superpower that was ruling over the area that they belonged to. It's a reversal of what we would expect if we look back through what we know about history and indeed what the Bible tells us. And that's instructive about what this psalm is trying to teach us because the fact is that this the fact that this psalm doesn't describe 100% the factual historical reality of Israel points us to the fact that it's pointing to us something deeper it's pointing to a reality at work behind this psalm one that reflects how things really are even if it doesn't look like that in the present world so what is this reality well there's a concept in biblical theology called the already and the not yet And the idea behind this concept is that there's an underlying reality that's already true, but the world itself doesn't exhibit the final fulfillment of that reality. So to put that another way, we could think of it as what we see today is not necessarily reflective of the reality that is happening behind the scenes. And Psalm 2 is a perfect example of that. We have the kingdom of Israel. It's this small nation in the big scheme of things. But Psalm 2 shows us that even though it doesn't look like it's prominent, it doesn't look like it has a place of power and prestige. That's not actually how things are, because it does have those things, because it has Yahweh as its God. So another example of this already idea of the already not yet um, is our sanctification. So Paul tells us in Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? But I think you and I all know that in this present age, we continue to struggle against our sinful natures, even though one day they're going to be wiped away. We've already died to sin, but we don't see the full reality of that yet. We're slaves to it no longer. It no longer rules us, but we haven't seen its extermination in our lives and on this earth like we will in the last day. Or to use a more secular tongue-in-cheek example, uh, consider the television show Jeopardy. So the film, they film episodes of Jeopardy, uh, it's a trivia show if you haven't watched it in uh, large chunks. So if you're a contestant and you know your trivia and based on some of the pub quiz results that we've done during lockdown, a few of you would probably be pretty good at it. Um, you can you can be the champion of Jeopardy and have won all your prize money without the rest of the world knowing anything about it. You've already won your game, you've already gotten your prize money, but as far as the world is concerned, nothing has happened until Monday at eight pm when the show airs on TV. And then, The already, uh, the not yet becomes the already, right? You're already a champion, but you haven't been recognized yet. But once that episode airs, the already and the not yet become the reality. We see things the way that they really are. So in Psalm 2, what's happening is the psalmist is pulling back the curtain of the cosmos, and he's showing us what's really going on behind the scenes. Despite this apparent powerlessness of the nation of Israel, Yahweh reigns supreme. The nations are still subject to him and his rule. The Israelites likely would have used this psalm in their coronation ceremonies. They, they knew the already, but they were looking forward to the not yet, right? They were speaking these things aspirationally about how the king would act as Yahweh's representative here on earth. But, but it, it really is looking forward to something. It really is something that's aspirational because the king that this psalm is telling us about is not one of the righteous kings of the Old Testament. It's not Hezekiah or Josiah or Solomon or even the greatest king in Israelite history, David. The psalmist is looking forward to a future king, one who will truly unite the world under his rule, one who really will break the rebellion of the nations with a rod of iron as he takes possession of his inheritance. And I want us to hold this idea in our minds because it's important and we're gonna come back to it later. But it's apparent that this Psalm speaks intimately to us about the way that we experience the world because the world so often seems to be in constant rebellion against God and his people. It seems as if there's no shortage of rulers and no shortage of authorities who'll seek to challenge the rule of God and establish themselves as king. But this Psalm promises us that despite those rebellions, Yahweh himself remains in control. And that brings us to another interesting question. How does the God of the universe respond to these challenges to his authority? Is he concerned about the power that these earthly kings have and how they might challenge his rule? No, not in the slightest. In verse 4, the psalmist tells us something absolutely remarkable. He says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand what the psalmist is doing here. The, The point of this particular line is not that God finds our sins and our rebellions to be amusing. Uh, Quite the contrary, actually. We need only to read on to the next verses to know that our sin and our rebellions incite the anger of God and provoke his wrath. Verses 5 and 6 tell us he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. What the psalmist is doing here is he's using a rhetorical device to help us understand how fundamentally ridiculous rebellion is in the face of a sovereign God. It has no chance of success. And far from eliciting concern from God that his authority is being threatened, the truth is that our rebellions are fundamentally laughable. It is laughable how powerless we are to set ourselves in opposition to Yahweh and his plans and purposes and expect anything other than complete defeat and judgment for our sins. God has established his king. There can be no other appropriate response than to acknowledge him and to serve him. And yet the kings of the earth persist in rebelling against him. But furthermore, so do you and I. I want us to stop for a minute and consider the implications that this passage has for our own petty rebellions in our hearts against the sovereignty of God. Because the people in view in this particular psalm are people who have earthly power. They're kings and rulers who reasonably could be expected to have an army and influence and power, probably far more than you or I have. But the psalmist takes great care to demonstrate that despite all of these trappings of earthly power, Their rebellion is utterly ridiculous and hopeless. How much more then are our own little petty rebellions, hopeless and ridiculous in the face of of the sovereign God? What the reality here speaks to is the depth of depravity in in the hearts of men and women. The root of everything that's wrong with the world comes down to this rebellious spirit that lives deep inside the heart of man. We see it in the garden where Adam and Eve give in to the temptation to sin and take the fruit from the serpent so that they can be like God. We see it in the story of Cain, where he murders his brother Abel in a fit of jealousy. We see it in the people of Israel when they traveled to Mount Sinai. They've just been led out of Egypt by the mighty hand of Yahweh himself. They've seen the plagues that have been inflicted on the Egyptians and the power, the power of God over all of the gods of the Egyptians. They've seen the sea parted, they've seen the pillar of cloud by day, they've seen the pillar of fire by night, and yet they still fall down and worship a golden calf while Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law. We can continue to work our way through scripture and find more and more and more examples of these rebellions the people of Israel, like like me, learn very slowly apparently. But we don't have to search far to find them in our own hearts either. Because how many times have we sought our own selfish gain instead of working for the good of others? How many times have we disregarded the good commands of God because deep down inside in our hearts, we think that we actually know better? How many times have we done a prayer of confession where we have talked about what, how we've done the things that we ought not to have done, and we confess that we haven't done the things that we ought to have done? The picture that the psalm paints here is one of earthly kings and rulers casting aside the reign of God, but the truth is that every single one of us has done that in our hearts. We've put our own wants and our own desires ahead of the rule of God and what he's told us we ought to do. And in doing that, we've rejected the rightful king and we've attempted to establish our own selves in his place instead. And that fact should be really sobering because it means that we end up falling under the same condemnation that the kings and the rulers of the nations do in this psalm. Despite our rebellions being doomed to failure, they still rightfully incur the wrath of God. And friends, it's important to remember that our own rebellions are as gravely serious as these major rebellions of the kings and the rulers with substantial earthly power behind them. Sin, after all, is sin. It doesn't matter how big or how small the offense happens to be. The simple fact that we're in rebellion against God is enough to bring the full weight of his wrath to come to bear down upon us. Because sin, as we know, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere and in everyone. And understanding the nature of our own rebellion against God actually helps us to better understand the circumstances of the world around us. Because the whole world is in a constant state of rebellion against God. And this rebellion bleeds, uh, breeds conflict and it breeds strife. And furthermore, it even bleeds over into the natural world. Creation itself has become corrupted as a result of our sin. And in fact, that even leads us to say that the pandemic that we find ourselves in now is a result of our sin as well. Now, I want to be crystal clear here. I'm not saying that COVID-19 has come about as a result of divine judgment against some particular sin that we've committed. Not at all. I'm simply hearkening back to this biblical truth that sickness, pain, and death have entered into the world as a result of our sins. The scriptures promise us in Revelation 21, verse 4, that when God comes to dwell with us, that there won't be any more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. Sickness and death aren't normal. They're not natural. The world wasn't meant to be this way, but it's become so as a result of sin. And therefore we have to live out the consequences of that every day in our daily lives. And so what that means is that we ought to expect strife and struggle and difficulty and challenging circumstances to be present in this world as a result of our sins. But Psalm 2 also shows us that this presence, that their presence here doesn't compromise the sovereignty of God. God still remains in control. Despite all of these challenges to his reign and his rule, he's still the ruler over all. And he's still going to visit his wrath against sin. And we need to see this and we need to remember it because it's vitally important. Our sins aren't trifles to be forgotten and ignored. They're deadly serious business. They incur the wrath of our holy God because sin ultimately is the root of everything that's wrong in this world. But friends, there's even better news, because God in his goodness doesn't only visit his wrath upon sin, because if he just did that, that wouldn't really be very good news at all, because we would all fall under that wrath. But he goes one step further. He makes a way for us to come back to him. He ends the dominion of suffering and sin and death. And he does that in the promise of a perfect king, one who's gonna rule the nations with with righteousness and with justice, who's going to crush their rebellion beneath his feet, and who's going to inherit the very ends of the earth. And it's to this king that we turn our attention to in verses seven through 12. So I want us to see here, not only the power and the majesty of Yahweh, but also for us to understand the great mercy that he has towards his people. And in fact, even to those who aren't his people. So in verses one through six, we've seen warnings about the consequences of rebellion against God. We've been told how it's hopeless and how the only thing that it can do, it can't set us free. It can't make us independent to rule our own lives. The only thing it will do is bring down his wrath upon us. But verses seven through 12 provide us with hope. Here we hear the voice of the king. Remember I said earlier that scholars believe that this Psalm likely would have been used in the coronation of a new king. And so here's what the king says in verses seven through nine. He says, I will proclaim Yahweh's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. He's speaking about how Yahweh has adopted him as his representative on earth. So to be the king of Israel was to represent Yahweh's rule. It was to rule his people on his behalf. And in so doing, the king became the one who was the heir to all of Yahweh's power and authority. That's why God can tell him, ask me and I'll make all the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, because they already belong to God. And they're gods to give to his heir. To his heir. But as we mentioned earlier, we immediately see what looks to be a problem. Because while the king would have used this psalm during his coronation, it's pretty clear from Israelite history that such a king didn't exist when the monarchy was around. For the kings of ancient Israel, this psalm was aspirational. It was ideological. They knew the power and the majesty of God, but they also knew their own sinfulness and the sinfulness of their whole nation. For them, this was a promise that would have been out of reach. And the monarchy, as we all know, it ended in exile without these promises being fulfilled in the here and in the now. But if there's one thing that we know from the whole council of scripture, it's that God is faithful to the promises that he makes. And 600 years later, after the monarchies come crashing down with the exile to Babylon, there comes another king born in a stable in a tiny backwater town named Bethlehem. And when this king is baptized in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, symbolizing his anointing as God's king as God's son. And a voice echoes from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. You know, the authors of the New Testament, they knew very well that Psalm 2 spoke to something greater than the kings of ancient Israel. Both Peter in Acts chapter four and Paul in Acts chapter 13 and the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews one verse five ascribe the description of Psalm 2 to Jesus. And John's vision in Revelation 19, verse 15, shows the risen Christ striking down these rebellious nations and ruling them with a rod of iron. What the earthly kings of ancient Israel couldn't do, the promised king, God's one and only actual son, will do. He'll break the backs of rebellion throughout the nation, and he'll visit the righteous wrath of God against it. But friends, Jesus has done even more than that. He's not only come to crush rebellion and to visit the wrath of God against those who oppose him, but he's also come to reconcile the rebellious to himself. Verse 5 reminds us that the correct payment for our rebellion against God is wrath. And we know that we serve an infinitely good and an infinitely powerful God, so even the tiniest little rebellion is enough to provoke his righteous wrath and his anger against us. And yet God's one and only son, his true king, Comes not only to rule and not only to reign, but to offer himself to bear God's wrath in our place. Because on the cross, Jesus carried the full weight of God's punishment for our sins and our rebellions. His death is the reason for our life. His resurrection is the validation of that sacrifice. And his ascent to power at the right hand of the Father shows his true power as the righteous King over all the earth. And in him, there is hope for rebellious sinners like you and I if we turn from our sins and we cast ourselves on God's mercy and on the finished work of Christ. Because the psalmist tells us, and in fact he tells the nations, those who were outside the people of Israel, that there is a way back from rebellion against God. He implores us in verses 10 through 13, he says, Now therefore, you kings, be wise, be, wise. be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. And celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. And what we see here is God in his grace warning us about the consequences of our sin and rebellion. And he calls on us instead to serve him with fear, to kiss his son and to submit to him. And here I want us to take a brief look at Psalm 103 because that psalm has much to tell us about what it means to fear Yahweh. So in verses 8 through 13 of Psalm 103, we read this. It says, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he arbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is, the love for the, is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. Friends, there's a story told about long ago a poor woman from the slums who was invited to go with a group of people for a holiday at the sea. And she'd never seen the ocean before, and when she saw it, she burst into tears. And Those around her thought that it was strange that she should be crying when such a lovely holiday had been given to her. Why in the world are you crying, they asked. And This woman pointed to the ocean, and she said, this is the only thing that I have ever seen that there was enough of. God has oceans upon oceans upon oceans of mercy and grace and love and compassion. There's enough of it, and God delights to show it to us. To fear, Yahweh is to serve him sincerely, with awe and with reverence. The psalmist here, he's not calling us to worship God out of fear for what might happen to us if we don't. He's instead inviting us to look and to see and to know the goodness of the one true God, to see how he is in fact slow to anger, how he abounds in love, how he doesn't treat us like our sins deserve. He invites us to ponder in light of the full testimony of scripture, how God has laid his wrath upon his own king, his own son, that we might be reconciled to him. Redemption and refuge come in the act of submitting to that son, turning from our rebellion, reordering our lives around him as a direct result of the grace that he's lavished upon us. To those who don't understand the great love and the great mercy of God, to sit under his rule feels like chains and shackles that must be cast off. But to those of us who have been brought to life by his spirit, who have seen the mercy and the grace that he's poured out upon us, the rule of God is something to be desired and celebrated. It's something to be served with trembling, with awe and with reverence, that the great God of the universe would consider people like us and would call us to himself. Friends, it often feels like the world is out of control, probably more so than normal in the midst of the pandemic that's going on right now. But Psalm 2 offers great assurance to those of us who have put our faith in Christ. It acknowledges that the world's in rebellion against God. It helps us make sense of the way that things really are. But in doing that, it really does pull back the curtain for us to see how, things, how the world really is that despite the ongoing rebellion that we see, the outworkings of that rebellion in the world, God is still sovereign. He still reigns. He still remains in control. There is no struggle for power. The final result is a foregone conclusion. But more importantly than that, I think it gives us hope. It gives us hope that no matter how bad things may seem to be, no matter how upside down the world is, whatever troubles arise, we can flee to the God of the universe as our refuge. He calls us to rest in the depths of the mercy and the finished work of the King, knowing that our sins have been removed from us as far as the East is from the West, and knowing that we serve a good and a gracious Father who has compassion on us, and knowing that one day Christ is going to come back, and he's going to make this whole world right again. It means that we don't need to be afraid of the changing winds of this life, as disruptive as they may be, because God reigns in heaven. He's on his throne and he hasn't ceased to care about his people. I wanna end this morning with one last promise. In Revelation chapter two, 20, uh, 26 and 27, Jesus is speaking to the church in Theatira, and he tells them this. He says, to the one who is victorious and who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, and that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. what Jesus does here is, again, remarkable. He invites his people to share in his inheritance, to do the work of spreading and establishing justice and righteousness in the world and standing in opposition to rebellion. He gives us the work of spreading hope, of showing what his kingdom is going to look like and ruling it with him when it all comes comes into fruition in its final form. The promises that Psalm 2 gives to Yahweh's true king are then given by the true king to those of us who find refuge in him. And so friends, I hope that in light of this, we're doing the best that we can to take advantage of the opportunity that these present circumstances present us with. Because so much of our lives has been disrupted as a result of COVID. So many things that we've taken for granted have been stripped away. And for many, this is a time of loneliness, of hopelessness, of despair. But in the scriptures, God has given us himself, and he's called upon us to come and take refuge in him. And so my prayer for all of us this morning is that we will see these opportunities when they arise with our friends and our neighbors, that we'll be able to give them a good reason for the hope that we have, that we won't be afraid to speak to them about the glorious promises of God and what he's done for us, How no matter how crazy and turned around and upside down things might be. God is there, and he cares. To those who are hopeless, I pray that we'll be able to speak hope, to exhort to them that things are not really as they seem, that the situation is not hopeless and chaotic, but God's in control, and we can point them to the true king. And for our own selves, when we despair, when things seem so difficult and so hard, I pray that we'll run to the open arms of Jesus, who bled and died for our sake, that we'd be reconciled to him and share in his inheritance, and that we would hold fast to the hope that the cross gives us, that God is there, that he does care, and that he has redeemed and restored us, and he's brought us back, and that one day, all of these crazy, messed up, wild things that we see will cease to be. I'm going to end this morning with a quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon that I hope will edify your hearts and encourage you to find refuge in the arms of our Redeemer. He says this, he says, our best portion and our richest heritage, we cannot lose. Whatever troubles come, let us play the man. Let us show that we are not such little children as to be cast down by what may happen in this poor and fleeting state of time. Our country is Emmanuel's land. Our hope is above the sky. And therefore, calm as the summer's ocean, we will see the wreck of everything earthborn, and yet still rejoice in the God of our salvation. Let's pray.